Last week, we were reminded yet again that a good part of the emphasis in 2 Peter is the fact that there were false teachers aplenty. And they were causing a great discouragement among the people of God. You see, it was a common belief in the days of the New Testament and the early church that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. In fact, that was the impetus behind Paul's writing both of the Thessalonian letters. They were discouraged because some in their number were beginning to die, and their question was, uh, what about the status of those brothers and sisters who have died when Jesus returns? And so there was this mindset that Jesus was going to return quickly and in their lifetime. And that wasn't happening, and as a result of that, that was the source of discouragement among the false teachers. Last week, Peter called them uh, mockers. They were ridiculing. They were, as in verse 4 of Second Peter chapter 3, asking the question, where is he? So basically, their conclusion was to live life for the fullest, and for them... It was a life characterized by immorality and their lifestyles, corruptness in their character, and greed in their approach to quote-unquote ministry. And so Peter begins to address the concern that he had for the discouraging influence that these false teachers had on his readers. The readers that, that Peter truly loved. In fact, four times in chapter 3, he refers to them as beloved, or as some translations uh, indicate, as dear friends. So Peter is concerned about the influence of the false teachers and challenges the flawed thinking of the false teachers because basically what they were saying is live life to the fullest because Christ is not going to return. Questioning, questioning the words of Jesus. If you remember, Jesus said to his disciples, as you see me ascend and depart from this place, so in the same manner I will return. And so by saying that Jesus isn't going to return, that there is no future judgment, basically live life to the fullest, because they argued from the very beginning of creation, everything has remained the same. And then Peter in verses 5, 6, and 7 says, um, have you conveniently forgot a worldwide event that punctured your theory of nothing ever changing? And of course, he was referencing the flood. He said how in fact, God pierced his creation with a deluge and destroyed everyone, the earth and everyone in it, except for eight individuals. Have you forgotten that fact, Peter says? So in reality, nothing has stayed the same. God judged the earth once, and Peter's message was that he's going to do it again. And the delay is not 
a demonstration of the, the vice of God, but rather the opposite. It's the virtue of God, as he goes on to say in verses 8 and 9 that we looked at last week, that the reason for the delay is that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is the desired will of God. Now, theologians remind us that Jesus says that wide is the path that leads to destruction, and narrow is the road that leads to salvation. So there is a desired will of God, but there is also a determined will of God, that which will ultimately come to pass. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that this morning, but if you have any questions on that, be sure to see me following the service, and I will introduce you to Brenton. Breton will be glad to spend some quality time with you on that issue. And for that matter, any other difficult question that you have. Breton, there he is. <laughs> He's available. So now we come into this final section. And this final section, beginning in verse 11 and down through the end of the chapter, verse 18, really is in two parts. Peter asks the question, in light of the fact that, as he indicates in verse 10, that there will be a time when God's patience comes to an end and that God will come and that God will mete out judgment not only on individuals, but this old earth is going to be destroyed. In fact, the heavens, the Hebrew word for basically the cosmos, the universe, will be destroyed and then there is a new promise of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will rule. So in light of this, what kind of people are we to be? So Peter seemingly asks that question. I say seemingly because as we'll, we'll see, it really wasn't a question the way the Greek structure of that verse is. It's more a declaration by Peter than a question. In other words, he doesn't ask us what kind of people are we to be in light of the fact that judgment is coming and that the earth will be dissolved, it will melt away, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Peter says, this is the kind of people you're supposed to be, rather than asking the question, what kind of people are you supposed to be? Which is interesting because all of the versions, except for a very few, ask the question. For example, in the ESV that we normally refer to here at Revolve, uh, the, the question is, uh, what kind of people are we to be in holiness and godly living in light of the fact that all these elements are to be destroyed? And I think the new living gets it right when they translate it this way. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. See, Peter, rather than asking them the question, draws them to the natural conclusion to be serious in our Christian effort as, as we live our life here during this earthly pilgrimage. 
And then in verse 12, he says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, Peter indicates that in some way that I'm not sure I could understand it, you could mark that on the Ask Breton category, how does hastening the day of the Lord possible? How is the hastening of his return possible? And I'm going to delve into the realm of speculation here, if you will allow me, because I can't give you a definite answer on this. But I can uh, kind of put my big toe into the pool of speculation, and, uh, and I'll give you three ideas that I have that um, might be a part of the answer of how we hasten his coming. We were already reminded that the delay of God, which was the criticism of the false teachers, was not because God wasn't coming, but as we saw last week in verses 8 and 9, it was because of God's patience. Because of his patience, not desiring for any to perish, he was giving more time for people to, to come to him, to bow the knee, and to enjoy that forgiveness of sins and that relationship of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't because he was delaying, as indicated earlier, it wasn't because it was a vice of God, but a virtue of God, namely his long-suffering, his forbearance, his wonderful patience. And so now, when we get to the point of Peter asking how we should be living, in fact, this is how, by living godly and holy lives, we come to the second portion of uh, the message this morning in verses 14 to 18, Peter gives four uh, principles or in the form of imperatives or verbs of command as to how we can be living godly and holy lives, okay? So the first few verses here, Peter reminds his readers in light of the future in light of the fact that Christ will return, in light of the fact that God will judge the world and ultimately create a new world, how should we live? Now, you'll notice that I skillfully avoided the hastening. I started you on that path, didn't I? And then I just skipped it to the, uh, to the other <laughs> next section. But let's go back. Let's go back, lest it be said that, uh, that here at Revolve, we, uh, we don't uh, make an effort to cover everything. Number one, the hastening could be by living godly lives. We were reminded that godless lives was a reason for God's delay. 
So could we also perhaps say that godly living would be a perhaps reason for his hastening of his return? So that's one point to consider. A second consideration of how we may hasten the coming of the Lord is to pray for it, to pray about it. Didn't Jesus say when he taught his disciples how to pray, to pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we could pray. We could pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, as we as we see this world as it is in one degree of craziness and sinfulness after another, sometimes we just lean back and lament, Lord Jesus, come quickly and fix this mess. But there's uh, another possibility of how we can hasten the Lord. Pastor Bill referenced it in his announcements concerning our giving in December and how we dedicate the entirety of our giving toward unreached people groups. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 that the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, and then the end will come. So it's perhaps an emphasis on world missions and making his name known throughout the world that could hasten his return. And again, Peter is not so much excited because the earth is going to be destroyed. But in verse 13, anxiously awaiting, he writes, because there will be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will rule. So with that in mind, now let's uh, leap to the second um, part of the message this morning. And Peter gives practical help on how we can be living holy and godly lives. Okay, number one in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Okay, number one imperative verb of command. Be diligent, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Now, this word be diligent for Peter was uh, actually a favorite word of his. He used the word or a form of the verb quite often. In chapter 1, for example, in verse 5, we read, make Every effort, same word, to supplement your faith. In verse 10, Peter uses the same word again. Be all the more diligent, there it is again, to confirm your calling and election. Then again in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may recall these things. So, One thing becomes very clear from this uh, first uh, imperative of Peter, and that's this. Peter gives an encouraging word of exhortation to everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus 
to exert themselves to develop Christ-like character traits and to rid themselves of spots and blemishes. Okay, let me say that again. Peter gives an encouraging word of exhortation for everyone who claims to be a true follower of Jesus to rid themselves of all spots and blemishes and instead to seek to reflect the character of Jesus more frequently in your life. Now, there's a clear emphasis here, and that emphasis is on our effort. There's no shortcuts to Christian maturity. Christian maturity is an active, not a passive process. Now, this is not so tremendously profound, is it? It's obvious, right? I mean, we understand this in the physical realm. That's why we go to the gym, right? Or in my case, if we don't go to the gym, that's why I feel guilty if I don't go to the gym. Because we know if I want to develop muscle, I need to exercise that muscle. The fact that I am uh, revealed in evidence every time I jump into the shower when my clothes are off. And I realize the extent of my lack of exercise. And so I won't ask anyone to volunteer by way of showing a hand. But think about this. The last time you were watching that late night show on TV and this commercial came on at 2 in the morning advertising, and there was only a few left, by the way, advertising this electronic gizmo that you could wrap around your waist that does sit-ups for you. And you're looking at this, you know, at two in the morning on your recliner, potato chip crumbs all over you. And you're looking at the two people who are advertising this product, a man and a woman. And they look great. And you ask yourself, why are they using this project? They don't need this. They don't need this item, this product. But if, if I could look like him, by having this electronic gizmo, where's my credit card? Where, what was that 1-800 number? Bad idea, right? We know that this doesn't work, despite the two people that are advertising this product and the way they look. We know that in the physical realm, if we don't exercise a muscle, that uh, atrophy takes place. Well, that's true in the spiritual realm as well. It takes effort. It takes faithfulness. It takes discipline. It means that we need to use the equipment in that spiritual gym, uh, reading God's Word on a regular basis. And so we ask ourselves, uh, am I making every effort? And, and I'll be honest with you, brothers and sisters, as I prepared this week, I was tremendously convicted on a number of levels. Number one, I need to get back to the gym. And that becomes obvious. 
But secondly, what kind of an effort am I making with my spiritual equipment? Am I spending time in the Word daily? Am I spending time in prayer daily? Am I spending time with God's people regularly? Am I, am I gathering with the people of God to pray together as opportunity avails itself? Am I taking advantage of the classes that the church offers, classes in, in family life and classes in uh, how to share my faith more effectively? Am I Am I coming Sunday morning expecting to have my tank filled, and then when I run low and when I run dry, I'll return and hopefully get another full tank? Um, am I exerting maximum effort? Am I being diligent? Am I exerting any effort, or am I coasting? I, um, as I said, was really convicted this week on a number of levels, and uh, I hope by the grace of God you are too. And then Peter ends this verse, interestingly, I think, with uh, without spot or blemish, and at peace, and at peace. That is to say, not allowing sin to fester in your life. Now, we all struggle with sin, and I lead the way. We all struggle with sin. But Peter indicates here that... Um, that doesn't sever our relationship with God. Sin doesn't remove us from our relationship with the Father. The relationship is intact, but the enjoyment of the relationship is impaired. The peace departs. So Peter says, as we work to the best of our ability, as we work diligently, so as to eliminate spots and blemishes in our life, are we maintaining that peaceful relationship with God? If we fall and if we stumble, are we staying in that state? Or are we utilizing the promise of 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why David in Psalm 51 after his great sin, appeals to God and asks, do not remove from me the, the joy of my salvation. Return the joy of my salvation from me. So the relationship is intact, but the joy and the peace of it could be impaired. Well, there's a, a second imperative, and we better move ahead here quickly if we're going to get all four in, and lest I, uh, lest we talk about Bill's long-windedness. The second imperative that Peter gives us is found in verses 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, 
which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. <clears throat> so the second exhortation is to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now that word count actually could perhaps better be understood as to remember, to reflect, to regard. The NIV translates it to bear in mind. And what are we to bear in mind? To bear in mind as he repeated now, as he indicated earlier in verses 8 and 9, he says, bear in mind that the Lord's patience is given so that we could be a part of that process of saving people. And brothers and sisters, uh, one of the areas of conviction in, in my life this week is knowing, as Peter indicates here, knowing these things which are to take place, knowing that God's appearance has been delayed because of his loving kindness and his patience, what role are we to play in the process of sharing this good news with others? That God's patience is so that we might be involved in this ministry of deliverance. And so I ask myself, you know, how many people have I talked to? Have, how many relationships have, have I developed for the purpose of sharing with them the message of God's love? Uh, perhaps as we enter into this Christmas season, we might become a little bit more sensitive to people that God places in our lives and that we might be more prayerful for those opportunities. Lord, give me an opportunity. You see, that's why we offer some of the classes that we do so that when those opportunities are presented before us, that, that we have the words to share, that we have the verses in the back of our minds to simply, not in a complicated matter, but manner, but to simply share the message of the good news with others. And it's an interesting thought here, by the way, as just a little bit of, a, of an aside, concerning how our Bibles were put together. We have a little bit of a hint here. What's interesting, I think, is the way Peter describes Paul's writing. First of all, he refers to him as our beloved brother. But secondly, if you notice in this passage, he refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. That gives us an indication of the fact that Paul's writings were being collected and circulated among the people of God. And when it came time to have the New Testament become formalized, one of the ways which the church uh, utilized in determining what God had inspired, keep in mind, the church didn't determine what was inspired, but rather the church had certain guidelines they used to understand what God had inspired. 
And one of those ways was which of these books that were being circulated were embraced by the people of God. And so, Peter indicates here that Paul's writings have been seen as Scripture. But there's a third exhortation. We see it in um, the end of uh, verse 16, and then we see it in 17 as well. You therefore, well, let's go back to the end of um, 16. Uh, some of these teachings of the Apostle Paul were twisted by unstable uh, individuals, specifically the false teachers. And then verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So, third imperative here given by Peter be diligent to be students of the Word. Don't be carried away by the false teachers. He appeals back to verse 1, to their sincere minds, their wholesome minds, their pure minds. And so, he reminds them to take care take care. Now, we use that expression sometimes at the end of a conversation we have with a friend. Take care. Stay well. Well, that's not the way Peter meant it here. Here, when he says take care, what he's saying is basically be on your guard. Be vigilant. Be careful because there are many voices out there that will take the Scripture and twist it and turn it to their own benefit. And that's why we need to be so careful. That's why we as a church offered a class last spring called hermeneutics, which is the fancy pants way of naming a class which helps us to interpret the Scripture correctly. Hermeneutics. If we offer that again, you should try to attend because there's a lot of bizarre interpretations of the Bible. I remember on one occasion I was at a men's fellowship and there were a number of brothers from different area churches that were there. And one of the brothers shared the most bizarre thought and attributed it to God. He completely ripped the verse out of context, completely misused this verse. And so, my mind right away thought, but then I thought, now, you know, just look around and see what the reaction is. There was no one who said, well, wait, wait a minute, where, where did you find that? How, how did you get to that, to that? Instead, the opposite was going on. As I looked around, I, I, I saw many men in the room listening to this bizarre sharing and say, oh, praise God, brother. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Amen. Praise the Lord. And I thought, man, what planet are we on? That, that no one has a sense of understanding rightly the Scripture? 
And it reminded me of one of my favorite non-Bible quotes. I mean, don't think me a weirdo here, but this, this quote I just love. It just brings a smile to my face except when it's applied. And that's actually a, a statement that is made in one of Shakespeare's plays called The Merchant of Venice, Act 3. Listen to this. He has Barrasso, one of his characters, say, in religion, what damned error but some sober brow will bless it and approve it with a text, hiding the grossness with fair ornament. So Shakespearean. Well, that's a real beautiful way of saying there's no limit to the craziness of what can be said in religion, but some sober brow will bless it and even give it a text. And Peter is saying that's exactly the ploy of the false teachers, using Paul's writings and twisting them to their own ends. Brothers, and sisters, I encourage you to be a people of the book. And I would just uh, very quickly um, encourage you in three different ways as you approach your reading of the Scripture. Number one, read it in its totality. Read it in its totality. There are well-known people out there, some of which, if I mention their names, you would know. There are even some churches, some of which are in our county, that believe the Old Testament is no longer relevant. You will be hard-pressed to hear a message from the Hebrew Scriptures. My friends, please keep in mind that we need to approach the Bible in its totality. Secondly, we need to approach the Bible in its unity. We need to have that understanding of that scarlet thread that unites the Scripture. What an amazing book that over 40 authors over a period of 1,600 years, and when you get their writings together, it is one beautiful unfolding plan of redemption and God's love for his people through Messiah Jesus. That is miraculous. Read it in its unity, and there is a unity. I had one uh, seminary professor that used to compare the Old Testament with the New Testament, and he would say, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old contained, the old is in the new explained. There is a beautiful unity. And then thirdly, read it in its sufficiency. If there's someone else that on, that's on the internet or on the radio that claims to have an additional revelation from God, Peter says, be on your guard. For the word of God is once for all delivered to the saints. So in its totality, reading it, in its unity, rejoicing in it, in its sufficiency, trusting in it. And then the fourth and final exhortation we see is in verse 18, and with this, Peter ends his, his letter. And he comes full circle with the first imperative, and that is, but grow in the grace and knowledge 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but grow. And there we are again, reminded to exercise maximum effort. We're to grow in the grace and knowledge, not just knowledge. God doesn't want us to be spiritual tadpoles, you know, big heads and little bodies. There's a lot of people out there that have Bible knowledge, but the grace of Jesus in their life is so absent. You look at the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, gentleness. You see the way they talk to people. And you see that the grace of our Lord is missing, although they may have knowledge. And so Peter says, may the grace and knowledge be areas in which you grow. And then he concludes with this beautiful benediction. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In other words, any bit of holiness, any bit of godliness ultimately, and in the final analysis is it a tribute to the Spirit of God that he lavished upon us at the moment of salvation we we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit of God begins a process in us of working it out. That is to say, our sanctification. That's the way Paul expresses it in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation, he says, with fear and trembling. But then you must read the next verse, because then Paul says, for it is he who has worked it within you. So it's now our job to work it out. And that's the process of sanctification. Day by day, becoming more transformed into the image of Christ. Becoming more mastered by the master's teaching. And so that's Peter's challenge to his readers. That's Peter's challenge for you and to me. And so ask yourself this week, am I making maximum effort? Uh, am I making any effort? Or am I coasting? Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that uh, if we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, we uh, cannot do it on our own. But we are desperately in need of the Spirit of God within us to do his work, but we are also desperately need, Lord, of the expression of our own effort. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, we might uh, trust as though it all depends on you and work as though it all depends on us, because both of those principles, Lord, are reflected in the Word of God. And so we pray that we might uh, grow in godliness, that we might grow in holiness, in the midst of what Paul called in Philippians a crooked and twisted generation. And Lord, we pray that you might uh, give and lay upon our hearts individuals that uh, need to hear the message of good news. And we pray that you might give us opportunities to share the good news with them. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.